Hey listeners, welcome back to Shades of Cry. You've probably heard of John Benet Ramsey, April Tinsley, and Madeline McCann, three girls whose lives were tragically taken too soon. These three cases have grasped public attention from day one, with so many twists and turns and seemingly endless rabbit holes to go down. In the cases of April Tinsley and Madeline McCann, all of this attention may have finally brought the cases to a close. But there always seems to be more pieces left unanswered just under the surface. While so many people have been wondering what happened to these three girls, another case had gripped the town of Kelowna, British Columbia. A case that is just as mind-boggling as the other three I have mentioned, but a case that you may not have heard about. So today, I will be telling you about a case with so many bizarre events that has left me sad angry, and confused about how someone got away with the murder of eight-year-old Mindy Tran. Get ready, because things are about to get shady. Mindy Tran was born in Kelowna, British Columbia in 1986. She lived her entire life in the Rutland neighborhood of Kelowna, where she lived with her mom, dad, and sister. Mindy was very loved in the community. She was vibrant, compassionate, and apparently absolutely brilliant. She had lots of friends and would oftentimes be found out and about in the neighborhood riding her bike with her friends or riding it to go visit friends. If you saw her out, it was usually with her bike. Since Mindy was so well known in the area and her and her family had so many friends around, it seemed pretty safe to let her ride about. There always seemed to be eyes on her, so if anything were to happen, it seemed likely that someone would notice. On August 17th of 1994, Mindy had just finished eating dinner with her family, and she asked her parents if she could take her bike to go visit with her best friend just down the road. She was told she could go, and Mindy headed out. Her best friend's parents were informed that Mindy was coming to get their daughters so that the two could hang out. Mindy's best friend's parents expected to see her shortly. The ride wasn't far. So, when it was taking Mindy longer than usual, the parents were a bit concerned. Soon, they ended up contacting Mindy's parents, saying that Mindy hadn't made it. This greatly concerned Mindy's parents. I mean, she wasn't one to wander off. Sure, she went out a lot, but they always knew where she was heading, and they knew Mindy always stuck to her plans, because, as I mentioned before, there were always eyes on her in the neighborhood. This panic took over very rapidly, and Mindy's parents contacted police. In no time, hundreds of people had gathered together to scour the area in search of Mindy. By the time the searches kicked off, it was already starting to get dark, so the searches only went on efficiently for a couple of hours before seeing things became nearly impossible. The next day, searchers headed out again, and after a full day of searching with no results, everyone called it once again. The next day, 48 hours after Mindy vanished, her mother and sister reached out to the press to make a statement to bring Mindy home. 
During the press meeting, Mindy's mother was entirely inconsolable. She actually wasn't able to get any words out. She just let out anguished, scream-like cries, terrified of what may have happened to her baby girl. At this meeting, it was Mindy's older sister that spoke. She said that if anyone had Mindy to please bring her home, that the family missed her so much, and that she just wanted her sister back. While this request for Mindy's safe return was heart-wrenching, it ultimately proved fruitless and Mindy remained missing. Five days after the searches began, they were called off. It isn't clear why they had been called off, but the most likely reason is that the search efforts were needed elsewhere or there wasn't enough resources to keep the search going. So the official searches ended. But that didn't stop people from doing their own searches. Mindy's family and some other concerned Kelowna residents carried on searching in hopes of one day locating the missing girl. One of these persistent searchers would go out frequently to look for Mindy. When he did so, he often brought something called a divining rod. I don't know if it's just me, but I had no clue what a divining rod was before I looked it up, so I'll explain it for you. A divining rod is essentially a device with two handlebars that converge into a single outward pointing mobile bar. The device is shaped a bit like a fork, and how it works is that you set out to look for something. You may attach something related to what you're looking for to the end of the rod, then you walk holding the handlebars with the single bar stuck out in front of you. The outward bar rapidly moves based on muscle convulsions that are supposedly caused by vibrations emanating from the handles when you are standing over an underground anomaly. So under these circumstances, this device isn't exactly a scientific instrument. There is some scientific evidence that the devices are effective at finding groundwater, but the proof doesn't really extend past that. Anyways, this man would go out with his divining rod and he was given some of Mindy's hair and he would use this to scour areas around where Mindy disappeared. On October 11th of 1994, this man grabbed a friend and the two headed out to carry out yet another search. During this search, they went to a place called Mission Creek National Park. The two used their divining rod and eventually it apparently started to just go all over the place, which means that an anomaly was nearby. It was at that moment that the two saw what looked like a shallow grave, covered in leaves and sticks. This gave them a sinking feeling, and they quickly contacted authorities. When police arrived at Mission Creek National Park based on a call from a man using a divining rod, they really didn't expect much to come of it. But when they arrived at the location, they were quickly proven wrong. The man had found a shallow grave. Inside of it was the partially clothed body of Mindy Tran. Mindy's body was taken to the coroner's office, where they determined that Mindy had been sexually assaulted and strangled to death. Mindy had some sort of stain on her shirt that looked to be some sort of bodily fluid, and she had some hair in her underwear that didn't belong to her. The evidence was collected, and it was announced to the public that Mindy Tran's case was no longer a missing persons investigation. It was a homicide. While this seemed like the most likely outcome at this point, it was still devastating to the family to get confirmation that Mindy was never coming back to them. The public was angry, scared, and appalled by what had happened, and now everyone wanted to know who was responsible for this. 
While there was no conclusive answers, many people suspected the same man. A man who lived in the exact apartment complex that Mindy was heading to that night. The last time Mindy had been seen alive was walking up the stairs of that apartment complex, and everyone became fixated on this man being linked to the crime. For a while, nothing further was released on the case, but then, on January 11th of 1997, an announcement was made to the public. The police had a suspect in their custody. On January 11th of 1997, a man named Shannon Murin was arrested for the murder of Mindy Tran, and he was to be held in custody until his trial began. Shannon Murin was that man who lived in the complex Mindy was last seen in, and he was no stranger to the legal system. He had been arrested on armed robbery and drug charges on multiple occasions, and he had been on police's radar from early on in the investigation. While Mirren sat in jail, evidence was being processed to enter into court for his trial date set for May of 1997. Prior to his trial, hair analysis without an intact root was largely debunked. Human hairs looked too similar to conclusively link someone to a crime based on visual similarities between strands of hair. But something big had started that revolutionized the usage of hair as evidence. The advent of mitochondrial DNA analysis allowed for hairs that lacked a root to still be linked to an individual through DNA. Mitochondrial DNA is the only actual DNA we can extract from hair today, but it is considered a reliable source of partial genealogy. The important thing to consider with mitochondrial DNA is that it is exclusively passed on through maternal DNA. This means that it can be a bit less discerning than other DNA methods, and it may fail to rule out certain possibilities but it was still something that could be of great value in the case. So a crime lab in BC ran trials on the hair based on Murin's mtDNA profile, and the results were deemed inconclusive. Despite this first result, the evidence was sent off to a British crime lab that had been using mtDNA analysis for a longer time and had more sophisticated tests. After the tests were done at the British lab, the results caused the case to be pushed back to August 4th to restructure the case. The evidence sent to the British crime lab showed that Mirren's hair and the hair found at the scene were a match. This was huge in terms of the investigation, and the results needed to be incorporated into the trial to prove he was the man responsible. Once the case was created, the trials began on August 4th. These trials carried on for five months. Then, on January 10th of 2000, the jury started their deliberations. After one week of deliberating, the jury had reached a verdict. After a week of deliberation, the jury returned to the courtroom with an astonishing verdict. They had declared that Shannon Murin was innocent on all charges. When their verdict was announced, Mirren jumped up and flashed two thumbs up to the jury with a beaming smile. As he left the courtroom, he was seen absolutely giddy and announced that the right choice had been made and he knew they would see the truth. Whether Mirren is innocent or not, this seems a bit inappropriate to do at a trial for an eight-year-old who was sexually assaulted and murdered, but I guess it would be exciting to know you won't spend your life in jail. 
Before this happened, the case seemed like it was a slam dunk. There seemed to be nothing that could refute Murin's involvement, so where did it all go wrong? To understand that, we're going to have to go back a bit. Back just before Mirren had been arrested, there was an event that completely changed the future of this investigation. Sergeant Gary Tidsbury was the lead investigator on the case, and before Mirren had been arrested, Tidsbury reportedly told one of Mirren's friends that Mirren was the one responsible for Mindy's murder. He took the man to where she was found, then he allegedly told the man to bring Mirren there tomorrow to get a confession through force. The next day, the man told two of his friends the story, and the three of them headed out to Mirren's home. They got there and tried to get him in their truck. Mirren pulled a gun on the three of them, but somehow they managed to overpower him, take away his gun, and throw him in the bed of their truck. The group then drove off to the site where Mindy's body was found, and beat Mirren within an inch of his life. When he was found there, he was taken to the hospital, and if he hadn't been taken to the hospital soon, he would have died. In the hospital, he actually had to have his skull cracked to alleviate the pressure built up in his head. Due to his injuries, Mirren suffered permanent brain damage that affected his memory, emotional capacity, and other things like that. After over a week of being hospitalized, Mirren was released to go home. Two days after leaving the hospital, he had a knock on his door. It was the police. They had come and arrested him for threatening three men with a firearm. It was after this arrest that they were able to pin the murder on him. This potential corrupt behavior found its way into the public eye, and as it started to blow up, an internal investigation of the Kelowna Police Department and their work on this case began carried out by an Alberta police investigative team. This inquisition unearthed some information that showed just how poorly this case was handled. The results of the inquisition were released to the public as requested by the department because they felt that it squashed the notion of corruption, but it definitely did not look good on them. The report said that the team was poorly organized, and clearly a strong divide between factions within the department caused a lack of communication that led to a grossly mishandled case. The report also said that even with the rumors that Tidsbury had caused an attack on the defendant, he should have been removed from lead investigator right away. So this inquisition basically just described their work as borderline incompetent. Some of the most notable finds from this inquisition are absolutely astonishing, and they really concern me. Remember how I mentioned that when Mindy's body was recovered that she had stains on her clothing that could be bodily fluids? Well, if it was bodily fluids, those are an amazing source of evidence. So why weren't results from tests on them submitted in court? Surely, they could have helped the case. Well, one of the people on the case washed the clothes, like washed them the way you wash clothes in your dirty laundry hamper. Pieces of evidence with potential bodily fluids were washed of that evidence. That was something that blew my mind. Apparently, there was also fabricated evidence, coerced confessions, and just a ton of junk evidence. The whole case, when you took away all corrupted evidence, was entirely circumstantial. 
When court sessions began, Murin's defense lawyers used all of these pieces of information to show that the investigators had singled in on Murin and didn't want to see anything or anyone else to blame. The prosecution said that Murin took Mindy to his home, sexually assaulted her, murdered her, and stuffed her in a suitcase, and then walked her to the location where she had been later found. But Mirren had reported he was out of friends between 7.45 and 8.30pm, and that was the time that the prosecution claimed Mindy was abducted and murdered. While Mirren's friend initially supported this, something changed and the friend said he wasn't there until an hour later. The defense said that this changed due to coercion, and that Mirren's alibi checked out. Whether this is true or not, with everything else wrong in the investigation, it's hard to find what investigators say believable. With this amount of reasonable doubt cast on the investigation, I understand why the jury wasn't able to convict Mirren on the charges. These issues are just the start of a rabbit hole that I fell down looking into the issues surrounding the case, so stick with me because things are about to get really strange. One of the first things that comes up when you type in the murder of Mindy Tran into Google is the webpage MindyTran.com. I'm usually pretty skeptical of random blogs providing groundbreaking evidence that you really can't find in other sources. But what is on this blog has a huge amount of primary sources attached as photographs and the things said in the blog seem like things that aren't talked about elsewhere but you just need to make sure that you're searching up the right things. Police corruption and Project Endocrine are just the tip of this mind-blowing conspiracy. This whole thing starts with a witness testimony coming from a man who identified himself as David Ambrose. Ambrose was out near where Mindy was riding her bike on August 17th. He was going to get a friend from her girlfriend's place. While Ambrose was on his way there, he saw a man with his hood up walking near the Mission Creek Park. The man had a suitcase, and when Ambrose took a closer look, he thought he recognized the man, so he pulled over to say hi. But when he did this, the man turned rapidly to avoid Ambrose seeing his face. But clearly, something heavy was in his suitcase because the momentum he built turning away caused him to overturn and expose his face to Ambrose for just a second. The man then proceeded to keep walking and stopped at the back of Ambrose's van and appeared to be looking at his license plate before walking off into the woods of the south end of the park. This interaction was strange, but if he was who Ambrose thought he was, then he was a known drug user, he was noted for erratic behavior, and if he was tripping, he may have been paranoid. Ambrose drove off to get his friend and then took her home, he found himself back in the area about half an hour later, and he once again saw the man with the suitcase. On a whim, Ambrose decided he would follow the man, and he followed him back to a car park at 1420 Collision Road. Ambrose knew that this sketchy guy wasn't the one who lived there, and he was pretty sure he knew who this guy was. Ambrose drove by the area slowly and saw two others with the man. One of the men saw Ambrose driving and had certainly seen the car he drove. His slow drive-by wasn't subtle, so Ambrose immediately figured the guy knew that Ambrose was following the suspicious man. Ambrose said that he believes the man he was following was Shannon Mirren, but he wasn't entirely certain. He was almost certain that the man was the murderer. But when this happened, Ambrose wasn't actually aware that a little girl was missing at that time. 
Ambrose didn't even live in Kelowna, and he had left town that very evening. Some time passed by, and his life was fairly normal, until one day he saw something on the news. Ambrose saw a case update on a missing girl from Kelowna. The most recent update said that a witness had seen a suspicious vehicle driving around the area where Mindy had disappeared, on the night that she had vanished. The vehicle described matched Ambrose's van. Thinking back, Ambrose saw exactly why him driving around looked suspicious. But this meant that he needed to report something. He needed to inform the police about the man he had seen the night Mindy went missing. When Ambrose made his call about the vehicle, the first thing he was told was that the van was not considered to be linked to the case and that it was ruled out as a potential lead. Ambrose was confused because it was his vehicle. How could they have ruled it out before they even found him? Ambrose informed the police that he was the driver of the van and that he had some things to bring forward for the investigation. The Kelowna Police Department took his preliminary statement, but they never got him to formally signature his statement making it finalized, and they never reached out to him again based on his report. This confused Ambrose because what he had seen could be critical in closing the case. Concerned about his report not being taken seriously, Ambrose began to put out feelers for anyone who may have witnessed him in the area to corroborate his statement. Ambrose has a picture of his statement signed and dated to show that he had made the report even if it hadn't been accepted. Not too long after all of this happened, things started to go bad. Ambrose lived with his brother, and he had his van sitting out in the yard because it was listed for sale. This was the van that he was seen driving the night Mindy went missing. One night, a group of people broke into his home and assaulted him and his brother. The people supposedly said that they were members of the RCMP, and if Ambrose gave any statement on what he had seen the evening Mindy was murdered, they would cut him in half. Right after this, Ambrose made a police report, which he included a picture of the physical copy on his blog, stating what had happened to him the night prior. After this, Ambrose made it clear that he was not suicidal and he had no ailments, so if he died from something that resembled either of those things, his death should be considered suspicious. Apparently, one of the people involved in the break-in had a falling out with the others and said that they were going to testify against them. This woman was set to appear in court for her testimony, and just a week before she was to appear in court, she had died from an apparent drug overdose. I haven't been able to find more on this, so I'm not entirely certain of its accuracy. But something that is very interesting is how this ties in with what was called Project Endocrine. This project was launched to combat drug crimes in Kelowna and was formed by the DEA and Kelowna PD. This group said that through wiretaps that they had placed on Ambrose's brother's phone, which they had actually done, they found he was linked to the drug trade in BC. This statement was apparently based off of falsified phone call information, and he actually had no ties with the drug trade. Because of this statement, it was declared that the break-in was a result of a money issue related to his involvement in the drug trade, and that everything else was just a misunderstanding. So now, if you look into the break-in, you will find all official documents stating it was a drug-related attack. Despite all of these problems, Ambrose kept trying to get his story out. 
He ended up offering rewards for anyone who could corroborate his witness statement. He made these posts online and paid for articles in newspapers to get it out there. A picture of the newspaper article can be found on his blog. The papers that ran these articles had the papers from the dates the articles were released removed from the Kelowna Library newspaper archives, and they are some of the only ones that are missing. These things I've told you about are interesting, but if you're like me, you're probably wondering why the police would care enough about Mirren to go through all of this effort to protect him. Apparently, Mirren was a known police informant, and he worked almost exclusively with Sergeant... Tidsbury. The two apparently collaborated with other sketchy things, such as the case of the Kelowna rapist who raped at least two women in Kelowna and was identified to possibly be Murin. Tidsbury took the lead on this investigation as well, and the case moved away from Murin. Whether or not Tidsbury attempted to cover up for Murin, it is clear that Tidsbury has shown concerning signs of immense corruption. This conspiracy keeps going, and there are so many things that are supported, and more things that seem really out there. If you want to look more into it, start off by going to MindyTran.com and go from there. But make sure you have a lot of free time, because this will consume you for a long time. I don't know if Mirren is the one responsible for Mindy Tran's murder, but as far as the Kelowna Police Department is concerned, the case is closed. They found the one responsible, and he was acquitted, so unless new evidence comes forward, that's the end of it. No matter what, an eight-year-old girl was robbed of the opportunity of growing up. Mindy Tran would be 34 years old if she was alive today. Her parents never got to see their baby become a woman. In Kelowna, there is a memorial near where Mindy's body was found. A tree was planted with a plaque reading, This tree will grow instead of Mindy. This case is very tragic, and my heart goes out to the Tran family. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Shades of Crime. Our theme music is by Shelley Musso. This episode was written and researched by me. The sources for this episode and all of our other episodes can be found on our blog, www.shadesofcrime.ca. Shades of Crime can be found on almost any platform where you listen to your podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram at Shades of Crime Podcast. If you like what you hear, could you please rate and review Shades of Crime on Apple Podcasts? It's a fantastic way to get the word out about this show. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or if you would like to request a case, email us at shadesofcrime at gmail.com. That's all for this week, and I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.